America is many things to many people. Many things to many people. To mother and her family, it's church on Sunday morning. It's all races, creeds, and religions. Church on Sunday morning. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the next installment of White Nation Under God, where we explore, unpack, define, redefine this concept of white Christian nationalism, what it means for you, and what we should do about it. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and I'm so excited for next guest today, uh, an expert on all things law, white Christian nationalism, advocate, all of these things. Welcome, Andrew Seidel. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It is a true pleasure to be joining you. I feel humbled and honored. You're big time, man. You're big time. <laughs> you, you, you're in every place. You're talking to everyone. You're talking to Congress and, and all these folks and uh, your work. I mean, your work speaks for itself. And if folks don't know, they're going to find out. So <laughs> let's let's dig right in. Um, tell us how you define or describe white Christian nationalism. So I, I'm, first of all, I'm not a sociologist, right? As you said, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the front lines kind of fighting white Christian nationalism and have been for a long time. So my definition is not an academic definition. And for me, Christian nationalism is an identity, a, a political theology maybe that is based around and on the idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation that we are based on Judeo-Christian principles, and most importantly, that we've strayed from that foundation. And they employ the language of return and of getting back to those, those godly roots, those Christian roots, to justify all manner of hateful, evil public policy today. Things from the Muslim ban to child separation policy at the border to January 6th. And you know, for a long time, I think that Christian nationalism was, at least in our generation, Christian nationalism was treated as a historical debate. And it was this idea among academics, was America founded as a Christian nation? Was it not? And I think it really kind of ripped off its mask, um, showing that it it's not a scholarly debate about how America was founded, but this violent exclusionary movement that is bent on seizing power in the here and now. And I think we started seeing that at the beginning of the Trump era, um, but really kind of culminated in, in January 6th. I'm glad you mentioned January 6th. We'll get into that. And I absolutely appreciate you, you, you sort of identifying um, this, this sort of working definition that you use in advocacy in law. I think that helps us flesh out what this means. I want to get sort of into a little bit of a biographical question here. Mm-hmm. When did and how did white Christian nationalism pop on your radar? You mentioned you've been looking at this a while. Uh, not everybody has, but how did it get into your field of vision? So one of the aspects of Christian nationalism that I think a lot of people don't understand is that one of its most basic goals is to rewrite or redefine American law and the American constitution so that it creates two classes of people, the right kind of conservative white Christian and everybody else, right? So the goal is to kind of codify this privilege and elevate this particular select class of people to this special favored class and everybody else is relegated to this, this lesser caste or class. And I started noticing this in legal fights that I was engaging in really uh, starting about a decade ago was when I first started coming up. I, you start seeing history being invoked by courts and judges and Christian nationalist legal outfits and law firms like Alliance Defending Freedom uh, and First Liberty Institute and Liberty Council to justify violations of the separation of church and state or to justify 
redefinitions of religious freedom so that instead of this shield that protects people from government overreach, it is turned into a tool to impose that religion on others or to violate other people's rights, which historically has not been our understanding of religious freedom. So I started noticing it coming up in these cases that I was litigating, that I was working on, and these invocations of this Christian history that didn't really exist. This idea of this this conservative white Christian founding uh, being used to justify modern violations, both of of human rights and of the Constitution. Uh, And so I started kind of investigating and reading more about this. And really, um, in the lead up to Trump and his declaration uh, is, is when I first put the Christian nationalist label to what I was seeing. You know, before that, it was claims of we are founded as a Christian nation, which obviously is, you know, core to Christian nationalism. But it was probably around late 2014, early 2015, where I started really kind of realizing it was a problem and finishing the research on my first book. Um, And then, you know, as Trump really began announcing his candidacy and adopting it and became so clear that he was tapping into this strong undercurrent of Christian nationalism in a way that we had not seen in our generation uh, before, right? And and it turns out that one of the best predictors of a 2016 Trump voter, if not the best, was thinking that the United States was a Christian nation. And that alone tells us, again, that this this is not a scholarly debate about our founding, but it's an attack on who we are. Oof. Uh, yeah, back to that identity stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't want to get all up in your business, but I do think <laughs> it's relevant for our conversation. Um, this is, you know, this is a religious thing on on its surface. Many of the people identify as Christian. Did you grow mm-hmm. up in that background? How would you identify yourself nowadays when it comes to faith, religion, spirituality, any of that? So I'm, I'm not religious. I grew up um, in... A, a questioning household. My my uh, mom really encouraged me to question any and all authority, which <laughs> probably why I, partly why I do what I do today. Um, <laughs> I uh, she loves to tell this story. Actually, this is like one of her favorite stories. Um, she always encouraged me to go to uh, mass with my Catholic friends, and you know, Easter and Christmas services with Protestant friends, and temple with my Jewish friends. And uh, she says that she loves to tell this. I went to one of my friend's bar mitzvah. It was the first bar mitzvah I'd ever been to. And apparently when I came home, I said, well, I would like to be Jewish because that was the best party that I've ever been to. So <laughs> always a good uh, reason. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, and, and for me, it became it, I, early on, I thought, well, there's, you know, there's this vibrant diversity and none of them really seem to have it exactly right. And I kind of just sort of never, never felt that I, any of those were for me. Um, and then, um, Around the, the time of law school, I started openly identifying myself as an atheist, and that's that's the label I choose today. I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's important for uh, our listeners to understand, for people who are paying attention to white Christian nationalism to understand, this is about more than just Christianity or a single mm-hmm. religion. So what would you say to folks? Uh, why is it important that if you're atheist, non-religious, non-Christian, that you should pay attention to something called white Christian nationalism? I think it is going to affect everyone, whether they like it or not, is a big part of this. Because remember, the, the core central goal is to create this special favored caste, right? And, and I, I mean that literally. Like they, are, they are working to change our law and our constitution to make that happen. And if, if you are not a conservative white Christian, you are not going to be a member of that favored group. Uh, like, like, you know, if, if Christian nationalism is, if white Christian nationalism is not a threat to you, it's probably because you're a white Christian nationalist. Woo. Put it right out there. And I think you're absolutely yeah. right. How on the edge are we? I ask you this because you're in the, the law process. You, you, mm-hmm. you know how they're sort of manipulating the levers. Like if people aren't yet sort of, I don't know, 
anxious, concerned, whatever word you want to put to it, what would you say to them? I, I, I don't know if I could wake anybody up if they're if they're not alarmed already. I, and this is I get asked variations of this question all the time, and, and also solutions moving forward too, right? And you know, I, I think we are in a very bad spot right now. And my current my current expectation is that things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, I also would caution everybody against looking for a quick solution to the problem that we face. I think there absolutely are solutions, but I do not think there is the instant gratification that we are used to. I don't think there is a solution that is going to be instantaneous. I think there are some that would do go a long way and do that quickly, but there's nothing that is instantaneous. We are fighting against a movement that spent four decades, five decades building power and capturing levers of power and, and, you know, conducting hostile takeovers of the federal judiciary. Uh, and it took them decades to do that. And a lot, they're doing a ton of damage. I think we can, I think we can still survive it and I think we can undo it, but it's going to take a while to heal. And I mean, so to me that the, the important part of this is that, and this maybe is how I've seen the most people wake up to, to answer your question a little more directly is that their wins, right? The, the wins of conservative white Christian nationalism, um, whether they're in public policy or elections or, or in the courts, right? Like in, in the abortion case, uh, in the case of the coach imposing prayer on other people's children, uh, which we saw the court decide this year, uh, in the case of Maine taxpayers being forced to fund uh, religious indoctrination at Christian schools, um, all of which I get into in my new book, American Crusade, right? Their wins swell our ranks, right? So they're actually creating this feedback loop because the whole reason we are seeing this turn towards white Christian nationalism is demographics, right? Like this group that is historically used to power and privilege and especially deference to their viewpoint, right? A, a certain amount of we've never been criticized. What is this, right? For the first time, they are experiencing that loss of power and privilege and deference. And that loss of dominant status is causing them to turn to ever more authoritarian methods of retaining it, including Trump and, you know, these so-called strongmen and white Christian nationalism. So demographics is driving a lot of their work in the first place, but their wins are then further driving that demographic change. So, right, white, white Christian nationalists are working to privilege the chosen few and every legislative and legal victory they notch alienates more people. It wakes more people up to the danger, right? To what you were asking about. It drives more people to support things like the separation of church and state. So their power hungry aggression is growing our movement against conservative white Christian nationalism. Uh, so, and, and to me, this is, this is actually a bit of a reason for hope, even though I am I am deeply terrified of the moment that we find ourselves in as a country. You know, I, we are working to meet the unmet promise in the American Declaration of Independence and, and the U.S. Constitution, right? The self-evident truth that all are equal, that we the people means all the people, right? And previous generations have... <clears throat> They have failed to realize those aspirations and they've left it to their children to contend with human tragedies like slavery and segregation and subjugation of women and discrimination against LGBTQ people and now the climate crisis. And as we march toward that progress, white Christian nationalists are fighting ever harder against it. That They're not going gently. They are... They are raging, raging against the dying of their privilege. But in the end, I, I do believe that we will win because they fight only for themselves. And where they are selfish, we are selfless. We are fighting for we, the people. And, and our work allows Americans to come together 
as equals to build a stronger democracy. And I'm not talking just about what you and I are trying to do every day when we fight white Christian nationalism. I'm talking about the, the work that I do in my day job at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Right? These are the kind of things that they are fighting against and they're driving this feedback loop. So in the end, I do believe that we will triumph. Very long answer to your very short question. <laughs> that was tremendous. The way you broke down their sort of fears about demographic change, I think that's just raw and accurate. Like, we don't need to overcomplicate this thing. They're, they're folks who are used to getting their way, uh, mm -hmm. used to having the privilege of, of not being questioned or opposed in a bunch of, you know, structural and systemic ways that's been happening uh, as a result of activism and advocacy. And they're pushing back, as you said, with ever more authoritarian means. And one of the things that I say is as we look at social movements for progress, we can't just measure progress by like laws changed or the wins that we achieve, but also by the opposition that we face. And mm -hmm. so the, the strength of the vehemence of the opposition is also a sign that change is coming, has come, and the forces of regression are, are nervous. So they're trying to push back in a lot of different ways. So I really do appreciate that. And then, as you stated, you know, they push back harder. And when they do, it alienates more people. I think one of the big ways they alienated people, I hope, if we're seeing clearly, is January 6th. 2021, which is a date, you know, obviously I'll never forget in general, but it was, it was interesting timing because my second book, How to Fight Racism came out the day before January 6th. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they were that close together. That a day apart. And I'm like, boy, do we ever need books like this right now? Yeah. Um, but you did a masterful job, like a historian's level of research in um, this report on white Christian nationalism and the January 6th insurrection. So mm -hmm. can you help us? And I actually still run into people now who say, you know, white Christian national wasn't on display at January 6th or, or whatever, people who object to it or don't see it. Can you tell us how white Christian nationalism, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but to me, how it was unmasked on January 6th? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, so my book came out in, in May of 2019 and it's, you know, it's called the founding myth. And this, this, I wrote the founding myth to destroy the identity that Christian nationalists rely on by exposing and destroying their, their common well of lies and myths. Right. So it's so like, you know, I'm shooting low, right? Like no, no high-minded goals here just to try and utterly destroy this identity. But it, it's not often that you choose a subtitle for a book and then the subject runs out to prove you right. And the subtitle of my book is Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And I remember watching, like everybody was, January 6th happening in real time. And I was working that day one of my job, one of my goals or one of my tasks in my job is to stay on top of what is happening in the world. And especially with Christian nationalism, be able to push back against it as it happens. And I'm watching the attack and I see on screen, I, I remember this so vividly, I was in the kitchen grabbing a late lunch and I'm, I'm watching on my phone and my wife is like, what are you, what are you looking at? And I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm watching an assault on our democracy. They, they've invaded the Capitol. And right as I'm saying that to her, I see the Christian flag being paraded on the floor of the U S Senate. And it, it just, it, it blew me away. Uh, it was, it was such a clear moment that drew that connection indelibly. And, you know, I, you asked me at the, at the outset, what is white Christian nationalism? I also, I, I think of it, especially in the context of January 6th, as this permission structure that, that gave the insurrectionists the moral and mental license that they needed to attack our government and attempt to overturn a free and fair election. And, and I think the evidence for that is, is just overwhelming. It's, it's so indisputable and clear because they told us <laughs> loudly and repeatedly what they believed 
and why it justified the attack. They told us about their Christian nationalism. And to me, it's just like, okay, let's just listen to them, right? When, when people tell you who they are, listen, right? And so, you know, first of all, in the lead up to the attack, I think it's, I think it's abundantly clear uh, that, that Christian nationalists help organize this. But, you know, the, the day starts with Paula White delivering a prayer. And in true Christian nationalist fashion, she adds the United States of America to the Lord's prayer that is written in Matthew 6. So she adds America to a prayer that according to the Bible itself, Jesus himself prescribed and crafted. Right? Like, I mean, I think that I, you, can you come up with a better example of Christian nationalism? And no, and then Trump, of course, calls on the crowd to march to the Capitol, and he ends with this Christian nationalist flourish that I think a lot of people don't actually recognize as such, but has this really fascinating history. And then the crowd marches to the Capitol, and impromptu worship concerts broke out on that short walk. Uh, on their march, the Proud Boys knelt in prayer, which was full of this typical Christian nationalist rhetoric about restoring the nation. Uh, they were hailed as God's warriors by the other marchers. So they, they marched and then they attacked, right? And it's not just that one of them carried the Christian flag onto the floor of the Senate. Uh, by the way, that person still has not been identified, let alone arrested or charged uh, oh, yeah. I, since I last checked. Yeah. Um, you, have, you have the QAnon shaman leading a prayer in the Senate about patriotism and Jesus and restoring the nation. He ends that prayer in Jesus's name. Um, one of the praying insurrectionists, one of the people who's actually on the floor with the QAnon shaman talked about that prayer. And he said of the Senate, we quote, consecrated it to Jesus. That to me is the ultimate statement of where we are in this movement. And he's not wrong. And then a third insurrectionist, again, one of these people on the Senate floor involved in this prayer said, I just wanted to get inside the building so I could plead the blood of Jesus over it. That was my goal. And then he spends 40 minutes in this selfie video recounting every action that he took, all of it, he believes, directed by God. Uh, there's another insurrectionist who is this sipping this post-assault beer and she's on social media and she's telling her followers why she attacked the beating heart of American democracy, right? To me, she says, God and country are tied. To me, they're one and the same. We were founded as a Christian country, and we see how far we've come from that. We are a godly country and founded on godly principles. Right? I mean, that's the Christian nationalism that we were talking about in the, the beginning, right? That this is our country, and we've slipped from those founding principles. We've got to get back to it. And then, I mean, the imagery, the imagery is everywhere. And you, you people have seen some of the highlights by now. But to me, it was just, it was omnipresent. And even in some of the most famous things that we see from that day, people don't realize the connection to Christian nationalism. You, if you dig a little bit deeper, just a little bit more, you actually see, like everybody remembers the gallows from which they wanted to hang elected officials, including Mike Pence, right? But most people don't know that they signed the gallows as if they were writing in a yearbook. And they wrote things like, hang them high. In God we trust. God bless the USA. Hang for treason. Amen. Right? And all, all of that imagery from that day, whether it's zip tie guy, you know, jumping over the rails, the railings in the, the gallery or the Confederate flag or that splinter mob that Officer Eugene Goodman lured away from lawmaker, lawmakers, all of that has Christian nationalist ties. And then to wrap it up, there are the, just the, the crazy obvious things, right? The flags and signs that said, Jesus is my savior and Trump is my president. One nation under God, in God we trust. Jesus saves, Jesus 2020. I mean, Bible verses and crosses were everywhere. Uh, one sign that sticks with me says, said, I am on your side, God. Um, and, you know, there, there were Catholic images of Jesus and Mary and or Mary on banners and paintings, statues actually born atop poles over the attacker's head, uh, Bibles raised above the crowd. You know, I mean, this is like this is like a Napoleonic eagle or, uh, you know, a, a Roman legion eagle as the mob surges into the rotunda itself. They sang the, the battle hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on and prayed in the rotunda. Um, and then 
This one, most people missed, but there was <laughs> one of the people who attacked the Capitol and entered was a Catholic priest who admitted on camera to exercising, exorcising the demon Baphomet from the Capitol while he was there. Um, and I think the, th- the thing that most sticks with me, other than the imagery, is for that report that you and I worked on, that you did this brilliant contribution to, I spoke with Luke Mogelson, who was the war. He's a war correspondent and he's in the U S Capitol, which says something in and of itself, but he's the person who shot that viral New Yorker video footage that, so that we actually saw that Christian nationalism on display that we saw that prayer. And when I spoke with him about that and he let me see some of his other videos, he said that the Christianity was one of the surprises to me in covering this stuff. And it has been hugely underestimated And then he concluded, he said, the Christian nationalism you talk about is the driving force and also the unifying force of these disparate players, right? And it's it's really the Christianity that ties it all together. And of course, there were other drivers and motivators of the attack, but that was just the the overarching motivation and it granted them that permission structure that day. As you're describing this, my body remembers. Yeah watching this unfold like like feeling the blood sort of drain out of <laughs> my skin and feeling almost cold looking yeah. at this attack on our democracy and the level of detail that you describe it is absolutely chilling and i appreciate that you started with not just the visible symbols but with the prayers with the words because mm-hmm. i think it's important for people to understand uh how at home, this language was in this setting of an insurrection of violence, of anti-democracy, right? Like, like if you can think of counter examples, you know, if someone had been Muslim in praying, if someone had been uh, Jewish or another religion in praying, it would have seemed discordant in this setting. And, mm-hmm. and that tells us how much Christian nationalism has sort of taken hold and taken root in this um, anti-democratic effort, this authoritarian, that that just seemed to be, you know, natural religious posture of so many people. And then you layer on all those visible symbols as well. It's it's quite frightening and as a person of faith, quite enraging <laughs> that it would be yeah. used and used this way. And, and can I just build on that one? Just because you're so right to observe that. But just to take it one little step further is that they all knew that too, right? Like when they go to say that prayer in the Senate and they say, let's say a prayer, everybody's on board and cheers the idea and they know that everybody's going to be on board with it. They know there's not a Muslim nationalist or a Hindu nationalist in that crowd that's trying to do it, right? So you're absolutely right to observe it. That's the pernicious part about it. One of the things that I found fascinating about your research into this is that for a lot of us, January 6th seemed to just sort of pop out of nowhere in terms of its Christian nationalism, right? Like we'd heard the November 2020 election wasn't legitimate. We'd heard that, but for this, these sort of overtly um, religious Christian symbols and words to come out on January 6th to some were a surprise, but you actually went back and said, actually, (laughs) there were a bunch of precursors leading up to this. Can you Mm -hmm. just outline a couple of them and show us how they were already hinting at this. Yeah. I mean, there were, uh, there were dry runs for this attack. Uh, You know, so there was the million MAGA March, which was on November 14th. Uh, There was the Jericho marches, let the church roar rally on December 12th. Also on December 12th, there was the women for America first rally Uh, The day before January 6th, there was the One Nation Under God prayer rally at the Supreme Court, right? And they they believed and openly claimed that they were doing the, quote, will of God. And the crowds at these events waved the same Christian flags and signs that were ubiquitous during the attack. The same speakers, Roger Stone, Alex Jones, Mike Lindell, Ali Alexander, who founded Stop the Steal, Michael Flynn, Um, appeared at all of these rallies. They were preaching ever more belligerent messages. And the unifying theme across all of those events and speakers and crowds was white Christian nationalism, right? So the Million MAGA March, uh, which was on November 14th, began with a prayer, 
It was infused with Christian nationalism, like claiming that America is, quote, founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And, and that, that, that kind of prayer, that, that just sets the tone for everything that happened later. Um, the Proud Boys attended that rally. They knelt in prayer. And then later they rampaged through the city, burning and stabbing. Right? And, and these dry runs continued right up until January 6th. And I think the one that is probably the most instructive is the Jericho March. And the, the Jericho March was uh, a, a group that had held this Let the Church Roar rally. And the group was founded by two federal workers, both of whom claimed they were sent visions from God to, quote, let the church roar. And, you know, I'm an atheist, but I've read the Bible many times. I remember the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Jericho is a genocide, right? In, in the story, the biblical God orders his followers to march around the city of Jericho while blowing shofars and then to violently sack the city and murder every living thing, including animals that are in there. So the Jericho March baptized itself after this event and then organized events to reenact the slaughter. And they marched around government buildings in state capitals and in D.C., including the Capitol and the U.S. Supreme Court, blowing shofars and claiming to know God's will. And somehow we were surprised by the violence. Right. Like and if you again, if you look at what they actually said during that day and we do this in the report, you know, um, so you have um, the Let the Church Roar event organized by Jericho March, also co-organized by Stop the Steal. Uh, it also included an exorcism. It included speeches by bishops and oath keepers and cardinals and former members of the military and former members of Congress. And, and the language that they preached was just openly militant. Openly militant. And um, uh, Reverend Kevin Jessup, for instance, uh, preached, quote, this is a Judeo-Christian nation. And that he, quote, wanted to mobilize God's men made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, I would encourage people to go read more on the report because they this was a sermon of Christian conquest framed in militaristic terms like Warrior, battle cry, mobilization, secret weapon, enlistment, strategic, prisoners of war, glory, deployed in hostile territory under enemy occupation, commissioned as special forces, station, final mission to ending high treason. This, this was literally a call to arms. He preached of the, quote, warrior mandate, a battle cry, a call to arms, end quote. Right. So they were clear about this, but for some reason we weren't listening. Um, one Jericho March coordinator, who is also the uh, deputy director or excuse me, the director for the National Day of Prayer Task Force in Missouri. Uh, this is bizarre moment in the Jericho March where she or in the at the church roar rally where she's hammering the podium with this gavel while the crowd is chanting no king but Jesus. And then she thanks God for giving them, quote, weapons of warfare and says, let this be one nation under God in Jesus name. Amen. Um, Ali Alexander gives this speech and he says, you know, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us and concludes we have God's favor to God be the glory for God and country. Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, who was <laughs> is on trial right now for seditious conspiracy took the stage at the Jericho March to call for a, quote, bloody war before Trump was out of office. He was cheered. Mm. And you have Eric Metaxas, who I know you know. Uh, listeners may not be familiar with him. He's this, this uh, he's popular radio host and author. Uh, he's what I call, uh, he's one of the most outspoken intellectual Zambonis for Christian nationalism. You know, he's <laughs> there you he's go. working to put a respectable face on this exclusionary ideology. Um, so when Rhodes finishes preaching, quote, bloody war, Metaxas, who emceed this whole event, gets up there and says, oh, God bless you. This guy's keeping it real, folks. So, you know, I mean, you have this this very clear lead up. And it's and again, it's it's not just the imagery and the rhetoric and the flags and the signs, but it's a devout belief that this is a Christian nation, that God chose Donald Trump and that God was on their side. Uh, and, you know, this, this, the attacker uh, who kicked in Speaker Pelosi's door, uh, hoping that the crowd would 
tear her quote into little pieces was quoted at one of his hearings, his legal hearings later on. And he said, quote, God is on Trump's side. God is not on the Democrats side. And if patriots have to kill 60 million of these communists, it's God's will. Right. And so the attackers believe this is their country given to them by their God, that they're acting on his orders and defending his chosen one. And when reality collides with a belief system like that, violence is almost inevitable. Ugh. This, this is, I, I appreciate your discipline of law. You have evidence. You have the receipts. This is what I, one of the things I say. History has the receipts. You don't have to take our word for it. Yeah. Like you just laid it out there in their own words. And one of the things I always say is ideologies such as white Christian nationalism um, of which, you know, white supremacy is related always at some point have to both rely on and justify violence. And mm -hmm. here we are, we get the rhetoric and we get the actual bloodshed and it's not over. Um, I want to go back to this question of identity because I think that's, that's central and that's core. So you mentioned before your first book, um, the founding myth, why Christian nationalism is un-American and mm -hmm. you mentioned that you just want to debunk this idea. You know, if somebody comes to you and says or, or asks you, was America founded as a white Christian nation? From your background, your perspective, your research, how would you answer that? And the short answer is no. And historians are, are pretty uniform on this point. And the modern push to argue otherwise really does have this ulterior motive of upholding and justifying white Christian nationalism in the here and now. Um, and, you know, I, again, I, I, I understand why some people might suggest otherwise, but as you just said, like I've got the receipts and I would really encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the founding myth and give it a read. Um, Cause I, I, I've not heard in a decade and a half of having these fights both in and out of court thousands of times having these conversations. I've, I've not heard any new arguments or solid evidence to suggest that America was deliberately founded as a Christian nation. Um, and the fact that I've not heard any new arguments in like a decade is pretty telling, I think. Um, and everything is refuted in the founding myth. Um, and I do think a lot of people bristle on both sides um, when I use the phrase, the word un-American. And I did that on purpose. Uh, and I, I get why people might want to counter argue against it. And that's fine. Um, I think the word un-American makes some people squeamish because, because there's, a, there's a value judgment inherently built into that. But, but I believe that America is in a fight for its values right now. And that white Christian nationalism is warping and torturing those values, that it is dragging this country down a deep, dark hole. And if we hesitate to describe this identity with apt phrases, because they may be unpleasant, it, we are, we're ceding the American identity to an imposter. And one of the things that I encourage people who are listening, who are disagreeing with me right now in their mind and, and planning out all their next arguments, and I see you, I got you. If, if saying that Christian nationalism is un-American makes you uncomfortable, let me first say this. One, patriotism has no religion. Patriotism has no religion. Now, mm. second, I would encourage you to ask yourself, am I uncomfortable with the American un-American labels? because white Christian nationalism is already so close to completing its mission, because it has already done such a good job of redefining the American identity, because it has already corrupted patriotism and conflated it with nationalism and MAGA hats, right? Have, have they done such a good job of corrupting that what it should mean to be an American that I don't want to consider myself part of it? Because I don't think my historically accurate claim that America was founded on 
secular values and secularism as the true legacy of the American experiment is the problem. I actually think it's that they've done such a good job of making us think that they are the true Americans. And I really want us to undercut and undermine that because it's a core pillar of their identity. And I don't think we're going to win without doing some of that. Ooh. Well, you got a way with words, don't you? We've heard intellectual Zamboni. We've heard <laughs> that I can't. <laughs> has no religion. Uh, you, you, you're an author too, boy. I also want to give credit where credit is due. I talk about a definition of white Christian nationalism that draws on a phrase you use, permission structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I call white Christian nationalism an ethnocultural ideology that uses Christian symbolism to create to create a permission structure for the acquisition of political power and social control. A lot of people resonated with that definition. I just want listeners to know uh, that I first heard that phrase used in this context when you you used it. So uh, appreciate I appreciate that. Given roses where they where they're due, you got to. Well, I also I also have to wait. I real I have to say yeah. that John Lovett is the originator of the intellectual Zamboni. Though I have completely co opted that for myself <laughs> when it comes to Christian nationalism because it's Absolutely. it's such a perfect term. <laughs> all, all of our great art is borrowed. Um. So this second book that 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 has uh that you came out with is called American Crusade: How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom which of course I found compelling. I was glad to endorse it. Um, What are many people, especially evangelical Christians or maybe white Christian nationalists getting wrong about the concept of religious freedom? Such a good question. I, I think if I could correct just one misunderstanding, which is a generous term here that they have, it would be that religious freedom is not absolute. In fact, as a constitutional attorney specializing in enforcing and upholding people's rights in court, none of our rights are absolute with the possible exception of freedom of thought, right? Every right that we have, freedom of speech is, is somewhat circumscribed, right? You have freedom of speech. You can't threaten somebody with death. Uh, you can't defame somebody. Um, you have freedom to assemble, but that doesn't include the freedom to assemble on private property. Um, you may have Second Amendment rights. Good luck carrying a gun on a plane. Right? All, all of our rights are limited in some way, shape, or form. And what we are seeing right now is a crusade to turn religious freedom for this same select few people, conservative white Christian nationalists, into an absolute right. And so religious freedom has long been this shield, right? This, this hallowed protection against government overreach. It's, it's been the minority's protection from the tyranny of the majority. And importantly, crucially perhaps, it has been a right that we are meant to possess equally. And you know, it's kind of embodied in the words that are etched into the edifice of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. And that has been supported by a strong separation of church and state. But not anymore. That is not what religious freedom is any longer, and certainly not in front of the current Supreme Court that we have. And that's in large part because there is a well-funded powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations and judges, basically, we're we're talking about like a billion dollar shadow network out there that is working to weaponize that First Amendment, seeking to turn that protection of religious and freedom that's enjoyed by all of us into this weapon of supremacy and privilege for the few, right? They, They are setting out to make America a Christian nation and warping religious freedom as an attempt to bring us all under their yoke, under their rule. And and I I do mean they are truly weaponizing religious freedom. I mean, they are litigating the legal meaning of religious freedom as a constitutional right in case after case, and in the process, redefining that protection, perverting its meaning. Right. So like these these challenges, these religious freedom challenges are superficially about 
Christian crosses and veterans or playgrounds or private school vouchers or bakeries and gay weddings um, or coaches that just want to pray. But really, they are about privilege and supremacy and literally about privileging the right kind of conservative Christian over everyone else. So the the ties here, you see the intersection, are, are pretty clear. We're talking still about white Christian nationalism. And I think it's important for Christians who are listening to to recognize that love of neighbor extends to love of neighbors who may not share your religion, mm-hmm. who should also have the freedom to practice their faith or not adhere to any organized religion at all. Um, and And historically... Baptists in this country fought real hard for what they called religious freedom or, or the separation of church and state because in lots of different places in Europe they weren't allowed to practice the faith that that in the way they thought and now Christians some many of them Baptists are turning right around and and working um completely opposite of what historically they they say their tradition stood for. I want to ask one more question, and then I want mm-hmm. you to tell us how we can keep up with your incredible work. Um, American Crusade is the title of the book, and I'm really mm-hmm. intrigued by this word crusade. I've used it before in a previous series, Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Critical Race Theory Crusade. Mm-hmm. I think we can certainly use it in terms of white Christian nationalism and other ideologies and movements. Why did you choose that word crusade to describe what's happening with this attack on religious freedom? Really because it is, the the goal is to use religious freedom to elevate conservative Christianity above the law. And, you know, again, this this goes back to what we were talking about. Their, Their power and privilege has been waning for years, dwindling in the face of equality and demographic change. And, and they are seeking a weapon to reclaim their lost or waning status as the dominant caste, to entrench that lost privilege and supremacy. And they are trying to remake religious freedom into that weapon. And I mean, so th- this, this is a campaign uh, and <laughs> there was a call to this crusade that I explained in the book. And actually the call actually came from our, our own Supreme court. Uh, and it, it to me, I, I genuinely do not think you can understand what is happening in this country from our politics, to our culture, to our law, to our courts without understanding this attack. And, and part of the reason I chose the word is that I, I've lived these cases, right? This fight has basically been my whole career. I litigated some of the, court, the cases that are in this book in court. I briefed others. I have been on the front lines defending our country from this assault. And so American Crusade tells the true stories behind the Supreme Court's the Supreme Court cases that comprise this crusade. It, it draws back the curtain on the assault. And and when I say I tell the truth in the case about the cases, I, I mean that. A, a lot of pop law books just repeat the facts as they're stated by the Supreme Court. Um, but if if you do that in these cases, you're going to be repeating lies, as it turns out. Um, the, the conservative justices on our Supreme Court don't, as uh, Chief Justice John Roberts claimed or preached at his 2005 confirmation hearings, they don't just call balls and strikes. They, do, they don't do that. On politically charged issues, on culture war issues, which is a term I hate, I think it's meant to mask assaults on human rights, they, they manipulate the facts and the law to reach desired outcomes. So in American Crusade, I really tried to dig deeper. I interviewed people involved in these cases. I scoured archives and records and video and audio footage and dusty old archives so that I could tell you the truth about what actually happens. And one thing that I tried to do that I want to disclaim here because I am a lawyer and it's part of the reason I, I chose the, the word crusade is I think a lot of times legal professionals can get buried under legalese and civil procedure and judicial philosophies and levels of scrutiny and precedent, I think sometimes we hide behind them. And often it is better to just shed those trappings and look at the core of a case to get back to basis, 
to cut through all that nonsense that lawyers and judges build up around their profession. So American Crusade does that and avoids legal jargon by avoiding legal jargon, avoiding case names and even legal tests. So I, I wrote this book so that everyone can understand the threat and see just how radical and dangerous this crusade and the Supreme Court opinions are. Because, I mean, the truth is, when you, when you cut through all that prattle and piffle, <laughs> there's a simple truth at the heart. And that the questions that are presented when religion and the law collide aren't actually that hard. That the religious freedom cases this court has been deciding are actually pretty easy to solve. Unless there's an ulterior motive behind the cases and opinions. So I just got to say how much I appreciate uh, two things. One, like you said, you're on the front lines. Like this is not abstract to you. You know, a library thinking about your you're arguing about it. You're promoting justice and civil rights for 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 everybody. But you're also doing it with what I think is 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 a level of. Um, joy and you know haven't forgotten that life is worth living kind of a thing i think that's really hard to do sometimes but every time i talk to you every time i interact with you i get both those sides hey this is an imminent threat it's an urgent danger and the reason why we're fighting for good things to do and live for mm -hmm. in this so i really appreciate that about you and i'm so honored that you would come on white nation under God and share your expertise. How can we keep up with you? Well, thank you for those kind words. And the honor has been all mine. Um, I To keep up with me, I am Andrew L. Seidel uh, on all of the social things. Uh, I've got the two books. I'd love for people to go pick up a copy of American Crusade. Honestly, and my publisher hates when I say it, but I always say it anyway. I don't care if you buy it. I just want you to read it. Go to your library, get a copy. That's fine with me. Tell your library to get a copy if you uh, want to do that. Um, and then I would really encourage people, if this, if this is a fight that you care about, uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State is the organization I work for in my day job, au.org. And that they are the reason I can be on the front lines fighting white Christian nationalism and, and fighting this crusade that, that is in our courts. You know, we have a team of lawyers. We have a, an amazing policy team. Uh, that that is working to to fight at every single level from the courts to the legislatures to, and and build this grassroots movement that we, like we were talking about earlier, like building long term power to fight back against this threat to our pluralist democracy. Thank you again for sharing your expertise. We're walking away enlightened, encouraged, inspired to get busy and and do something about white Christian nationalism. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. America.